history of the book and kind of the cultural setting and gave you this really neat timeline, which I haven't put as much stuff on there this week because um, somebody did erase it. I was hoping they'd leave it, but that's okay. Um, but what I wanted to just kind of remind you of this timeline, Acts is, records the events from Jesus' uh, ascension up to about 60 to 62 A.D., or A.D. 62. Um, these are significant events that are not included in Acts, just so you know uh, what we're talking about. Acts is about 30 years' worth of history of the early church, okay? Um, there's a lot of other events here that you, if you have your notes from last week, you can look at, but there's a, what we're going to look at today is through Acts 5. So we'll finish up Acts 1 and then do through 5, and that is roughly a couple years. It might not even be a couple years. It could be just a matter of months, uh, but it'll take us to about Acts 6, which is where Stephen um, is martyred, and he will, um, that's roughly um, 35 AD. So just a timeline of where Acts fits in the history of the world. Okay, so let's read some scriptures first. Uh, what today's, we're going to have, a, there's several instances where Peter preaches, and the primary thing that he's preaching is Jesus and who Jesus is. So let's read an account of Paul about who Jesus is and what our reaction is should be to Jesus and who we are in light of who he is. So turn with me to Colossians 1. 15 through 23, and I'm going to read that. You guys go ahead and start getting your hands ready too because I'm going to ask some people to read today. So get, get yourself ready to read uh, because there's a lot to read in the book of Acts. So I'll read this section first though to get us started. This is a description of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been pro proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, became a minister. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and worship him. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we are grateful for who you are, who you revealed your son to us through your word, Lord. Lord, we worship you. Lord, we are um, sinful people, but you have revealed yourself to us, and you have changed us by your great love and your great grace. And, Lord, we are unworthy. So we present our lives and our hearts to you, Lord, in worship and adoration for who you are. Lord, as we come to the, the beginnings of the Christian church, Lord, our, our, um, my hope is that we would see the glorious hope that we have in Jesus, the, 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 uh, the faith that's available through him and the work that he did on the cross to save us and how he triumphed over sin and death by rising again on the third day, Lord. And Lord, I, I pray that we would see 
the building of your church as your work, Lord, not the work of men, but of your doing to changing, changing the hearts of men, which is changing the world forever. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time that we have. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Okay, so let's go ahead. Why don't you turn with me to the book of Acts and let's look at chapter one. Real briefly, we're not gonna read every scripture because we would we'd probably take several months to get through Acts. Um, but last week we talked about um, in the introduction is what is the point of the book of Acts? Remember, Acts was written by Luke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and Luke obviously also wrote the Gospel of Luke. Um, the purpose of the Gospel of Luke was to inform a certain man by the name of Theophilus about the life and ministry of Jesus. The book of Acts is the second volume of um, Luke's work to this same man, Theophilus. Uh, he refers to him as most excellent Theophilus, and it is describing the acts of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Luke is the acts of Jesus when he was on earth. Acts is the acts of the Holy Spirit. So you see two members of the Trinity at work in the themes of both Luke and Acts. So that's kind of that's the theme in the prologue of the book of Acts. We saw that Jesus ascended, um, and he commanded the disciples. Um, he gave them the Great Commission, and he also told them to wait go to Jerusalem and wait, wait for the revealing of the Holy Spirit. So that's where we ended last week. Somehow we had an entire session on that, and that's as far as we got in the book. But uh, there was a lot of background information, so if you didn't, we're not here. Some of you weren't because it was Easter. Um, I encourage you to get the app. How exciting is that? Um, the next section, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, was uh, the replacement for Judas. Um, additional disciple was added, and that was Matthias. There's basically two qualifications for a one to be added to the number of the 12. One was he had to be a witness of Jesus from the time of his baptism to uh, the time of his death, and he also had to be a witness to Jesus' resurrection. They identified a couple people as candidates for that. They cast lots, and Matthias was chosen. And that's the act of casting lots was saying, we're putting this in the hands of the Lord to make this decision for us. So that's chapter 1. So... Like I said, we're not going to read every little bit. That's what happens in chapter 1. And the people are waiting. They are being obedient to the Lord by remaining in Jerusalem and waiting for the advent of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so today we're going to focus on Acts 2 through 5. And we will see the arrival and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit-filled preaching of Peter, a description of the early church and its community, the apostles' use of signs and wonders, the apostles being arrested twice, the reality of sin in the early church, and also the public courage of the apostles before the Jewish leaders. Um, let's start. There's approximately, just for information's sake, in Jerusalem, followers of Jesus that are being obedient to him as far as waiting for um, the Holy Spirit to come, approximately 120 people. That includes the disciples, obviously. Now the 12, now Matthias has been added, and 100, another 108 people approximately, according to the text. Um, so let's read chapter 2, 1 through 13, and then we'll discuss some of these things. Um, anybody want to volunteer to read those 13? There's a long list towards the end of very difficult geographical names and places, so if you struggle through those, I understand. And if you just want to use the 
first letter, that's fine too. So anybody want to read that for me? All right, Alex. Acts 2, 1 through 13. Thanks, Alex. It's a good choice, Alex, considering you are the future seminary student. You should have to pronounce all those things. So good. Good job. So this, when does this occur? This is the day of Pentecost. That Pentecost is a feast celebrated by the Jewish people. It's approximately, Penta, meaning five or more, 50 days after the Passover. So it's about five weeks or seven weeks, actually, uh, but 50 days after the Passover. So Passover was celebrated on the Thursday night of Jesus before he was uh, crucified. So it's 50 days after the first Sunday um, after Passover. So, and it's even thought that potentially that this feast was celebrated as a celebratory feast for the giving of the law. There's some, there's some thought that there's some time frame in that in the book of Exodus that this is the, the time that the Jews celebrated that God gave them the law. Okay, so most likely the disciples are still in their home. The 120 are still gathered here. I, I was reading some commentaries on this the last couple weeks, and kind of always had the impression that everybody was in the temple already, but there's some, there's some disagreement there, so there's a possibility that the disciples and the followers of Jesus are still at this time in their home when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Um, two physical manifestations of the Spirit's coming, according to the text. There's the wind, which is identifying of the Spirit of the Lord, you can think of times where the Spirit of the Lord is referred to as wind in the Old Testament. You can even think of what we're going to talk about next week, I think, with Pastor Dan, how the Spirit of the Lord, um, the wind of the Lord blows where it wishes. So Jesus talks about that in John chapter 3 um, in talking to Nicodemus. To Nicodemus. Um, so there's some great symbolism there. But it was real wind from what we can tell because people heard it. It was loud, and that's what attracted people. Um, to the disciples. But also, besides the wind, um, the Spirit of God was revealed in tongues of fire. Um, and it's, it says, in divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. So it appears that there's a physical manifestation of fire, which kind of intimates the divine presence of the Lord. And they spoke in tongues. So they were speaking true languages. They were speaking, or at least true languages were being heard. Um, I don't think, this is not the time, because I'm not the person. <laughs> Just let you know right now. No, exactly. That was your joke. Uh, 
I'm not the person to talk to about the gift of tongues. That's not the purpose here. But what we do have here is a supernatural overpouring or outpouring of the Spirit at a definite period of time in history, and it has a definite purpose, okay? So you can ask those questions of Brent and Dan later. Well, Charlie's here. He, maybe, yeah. <laughs> but, but definitely they were filled, the, the text says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So what that did, it empowered them, and it caused them to, to say things in different tongues. At least they were heard by the people there. What, let's, we kind of have to skip around here, but what were they saying? This is important. If you go to chapter 2, verse 11, just after the long list, it's kind of halfway through verse 11, it says, the people said, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So they're not just saying gibberish or whatever. People are understanding the mighty works of God. This is interesting because we just sang, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. So it's, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise. I mean, there's tongues in different languages praising God. That points to something here, that this is no longer a Jewish faith only, but that this is going to be a faith that impacts the entire world and all the people. That's amazing to think about. It points to the fact that not only are Jews going to be saved by this, but Gentiles are and people from every tribe on the earth. I think that's an amazing thing that just here in the dawn of the church that we see. Um, so, but what's the deal here? There's, there's, there's a feast. It's the Feast of Pentecost. So there's people in Jerusalem that probably don't inhabit, don't live Jerusalem. That's why we have this long list of all these people that are here in Jerusalem. So they're here to celebrate. There's people from, last week we talked about, remember the cultural significance of the dispersed Jews or the Jews of the diaspora from the Old Testament? So remember, Israel gets, gets captured um, by the Assyrians, I believe, first, and they get shipped off to slavery to the east, and then later the Babylonians come and they ship them off to the, to the east um, as well. So there's Jews over to the east, but this is not limited to just Jews in the east, all these countries and geographical names. There's people to the west, there's people to the north, there's people to the south. Um, it even highlights that there's people in Egypt so there's, there's people in Egypt. I think it's interesting that these are devout Jews that are coming to worship. They're, they're following their, um, they're being obedient to the point of worshiping the Lord in coming to celebrate the feast. And they heard these tongues in their own languages. These people that were there from these other areas, they were representatives of large Jewish congregations or groups of people in those other areas. It's not like they were just randomly there. Um, I think it's interesting if you just think about, I just looked at Egypt because, you know, you're talking about, well, the Jews went back to Egypt? I mean, why would they go back to Egypt? Uh, <laughs> we had some problems there, I think. But when the Romans took over, e uh, actually, when Alexander took over Egypt, Alexander the Great, probably around 300 uh, B.C., he actually founded a city by the name of Alexandria, and he actually infiltrated some Jews in there just to intermix the people groups. And it's thought that in the large city of Alexandria, that about 40% of the population was Jewish at that time, so just in a few hundred years. And that represents about 100,000 people. So that's a significant amount of people. Um, besides Egypt, it's interesting also at the end here, 
in verse 10, it says, and visitors from Rome. So there's a distinct Jewish population in Rome. And actually, one of the commentaries I read as well said that one of the main places where Jews witnessed and proselytized the Jewish faith was in Rome. So there was a great influence there. There were Roman-born Jews by faith. So, but, you know, this is what we talked about here. This goes till 62, and this is where Paul is still in prison in Rome. So it's interesting that Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, points us to the fact that these, there are actually Jews here from Rome that are hearing uh, from the apostles. So you've got to think, at some point, these people that were saved, groups of these people were saved from all of these areas, went and even had an impact immediately for Christ before Paul even got there in 60 AD. So it's, that's an amazing thing to think about. But that's kind of the evolution of Acts. It's pointing us to the end that, to the end of the book where Paul is in Rome preaching, but he probably has some other people there because they were there. They saw the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and they heard the mighty works of God proclaimed by the disciples. It's amazing. I mean, it's, it's really quite amazing, but it does point to the fact that the church is made up of all the peoples already. That's, that is a theme of Acts, and it's initially right here. All right, so here they are. Of course, all were believing them, and no one mocked them, except for some. Said they were filled with new wine, which is interesting. Um, what It's also referred to as sweet wine, because it was prior to that year's vintage of wine being ready, um, just if you guys were interested in winemaking. Um, but let's talk about Peter's sermon. So people were, the people were attracted. Um, at some point, they must have left their home, and Peter is preaching now in the temple. So the people were attracted both by the wind and the fact that they heard um, the praises of the mighty deeds of God in different languages. Uh, before we get to Peter, let me say one more thing about that. Okay, so you would think that that would be pretty unique, that people are talking in different languages about God's mighty deeds during this feast. But the Jews actually didn't have a major issue with language. So they would allow these visitors to recite praises to the Lord in their own language. So it wasn't uncommon that the streets would be filled with other praises, but not supernaturally like this was. You would have hundreds of you know, thousands of people praising the Lord potentially, not these 12 apostles or the, the followers of Jesus that were doing it. So it does make it unique, um, but it wasn't a crime against the law to be speaking in uh, other languages. All right, so now we've got Peter's sermon. I've got this divided up a little bit. So if some folks would like to read this. Um, so Peter's now not only, he attracts these people with this, there's the attraction of the speaking of the tongues and the and the rushing wind, but now he's empowered by the Holy Spirit. He is filled with the Holy Spirit, as the text said. All right, so chapter 2, 14 through 21. I need somebody to read that, and then I'll talk, and then we'll, we'll get somebody to do the next one. So um, who wants to read that?
Okay, so this is First Peter announces that, hey, listen up here. These men are not drunk, and it almost says, hey, there's no way they could be drunk. It's only the third hour of the day. I mean, nobody gets drunk that quickly was his implication to that. Um, but then he exposes, brings out to light an Old Testament prophecy from the prophet Joel, which is from Joel 2, 12 through 14. Um, I didn't even tell you this. I just kind of gave you all some blanks. You can write your own notes. Instead of me trying to guess what you wanted to say, what you wanted to draw out, you can do your own. So, so there you go. That's the outline, though. I didn't mention that. So Joel 2, 12 through 14. So what he's saying is this is the fulfillment of that prophecy that God is sending forth his spirit to, and he's pouring it out on all flesh, says verse 17. So it's not limited to just the Jews. It's for all of the human race, um, which I don't know if Peter even knew the reality of that just yet as we see the, as we go through Acts. But if you look um, in 19 and 20, it says, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great magnificent day. So at, with the advent of the Spirit coming, there are natural phenomenon, and it might have even pointed back to the events of Good Friday when you know, the, the sky darkened and the veil was turned in two and the earth shook. Those kind of things might have reoccurred in the memories of the people that were there. So what he's doing is saying, this is what God has promised in his prophecy in Joel. That's his point here. And then next, he digs in further um, and talks about um, um, Jesus himself. And this is kind of a model. This first sermon, you kind of can see this throughout Acts. This is kind of a model for apostolic preaching. Um, let me give you a couple notes just about that, and then we'll dig into this. Um, the next part, that first of all, there's a proclamation that a prophecy has been fulfilled. So that's the previous, what we just read. So a prophecy has been fulfilled. That was 2, 14 through 21. And then he talks about Jesus' ministry, his death and triumph in 22 through 24. And then there's a citation of Old Testament scripture proving Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecies. Those are the primary things you kind of can see throughout the proclam through the apostolic preaching. So let me read verse 22 through 25. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held. So this is who Jesus is. He existed. He did mighty works among you. And according to God's plan, you crucified him. So you crucified him, but that was part of God's definite plan for all times, for him to save people. Um, so there's no absolution for those people for doing it, but it is God's plan. So you've got man and God working here. Um, but God ultimately is over it all. And then God showed that the grave could not hold Jesus when he raised him from the dead. So that's the life and ministry of Jesus. So he's talking in the temple, and he directly says, you crucified him. 
This is, he's talking to the same people that were just there 50 days before, or probably 52, 53 days before, who were crying out for Jesus to be crucified. Um, but next, so they understand that it, about that, I think, at this point. But he goes then, and he's referring to, uh, he harkens back to a psalm from David. So somebody could read for me, 25 through 36. Okay, so Peter, again, harkens back to the Old Testament and outlines the prophecy by David. Obviously, David, he's saying David died, and he's buried, and you know, we know where he's buried, so he's, David's not talking about himself, but he's talking about Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Um, and Jesus is, what he's proclaiming this whole time is, Jesus is Messiah, and he is the Lord. Messiah and Lord. Um, this is... Where is Jesus now? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So he's the Lord. He's reigning with God right now. And really, 36, it says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, Christ, Messiah. But he's Lord. It's a big deal to call Jesus Lord. I mean, that's like saying I'm ascribing to Jesus the most holy name of the Old Testament. I'm ascribing to Jesus the name Yahweh when he calls him Lord. That's a big deal. So Jesus is not just this man. He's also Lord, and he is king, and he's seated on the throne. So the people responded. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, what do we do? What shall we do? You know, it's like, hey, we're responsible for his crucifixion. Now, God has triumphed over that and placed him, you know, as king of kings, seated at his right hand. But what do we do? I mean, we, we did this. So what could possibly happen? Surely God is not gracious enough to forgive them for that act. But the glory of God's grace is, Peter says, repent. Repent. That's it. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So repent. And God will change your heart, and you will be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's that simple. No matter how devious the sin is and how great the sin is, God commands us to repent, and we can be restored to fellowship with him.
39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Once again, all, not just the Jews, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And then the climax is, so those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000. So pretty good chance that's more than the whole life and ministry of Jesus, of followers that he brought unto himself while he was alive on this earth. And it kind of, there's one quote in John, if I can find it because I'm way off my notes here. Um, let's see. John 14, 12 is where Jesus tells his disciples that they would perform greater miracles and acts than he ever did. The mere fact is, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit motivating Peter's sermon, 3,000 people were added to the number. Um, They all were saved. I mean, I don't think we can argue that. They were added to the number. They are of the household of God. So, that is amazing. We've gone from 120 people in Jerusalem to 3,120. It's a lot. That is the church growth strategy we should have. <laughs> um, so the first church, somebody could read for me, uh, 2, 42 through 47. There's no difficult wording in there. I like to provide you a warning. Okay, so they continue to add to the number. Um, there's an interesting thought here that the idea that the, the people were devoted to the apostles' teaching. It's definitely a mindset of submission, knowing that the apostles' teaching was key. And I think we can, even in our church today, we can see that through the teaching of the scriptures. Um, that is just parallels what we do. Um, what did they do besides being submissive to the teaching of the apostles? They broke bread probably a reference to the Lord's Supper. They prayed together, his united prayer. It doesn't say anywhere here that they stopped doing the Jewish prayers of the time or whatever the normal things were, but their prayers were enriched by the fact that they were dwelt by the Holy Spirit and were praising Christ. They had lasting awe at the signs and wonders performed by the apostles. And they had a spiritual unity which resulted in the pooling of resources. Um, So this is not... This is not an appeal to communism. Just so you know, we're not talking about the government should do that. But this is a spirit of unity by the people. Okay, this is, this is, the spirit has so indwelt people that they're looking out for the needs of others before themselves. Um, so that's why they're pooling their resources, because they want to bless each other and give to the needy among themselves. Um, but shortly, here in the next couple chapters, we'll see this is not a perfect situation. These people are not perfect, and we'll talk, we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But there's a tendency to find, to idealize the early church, and there's some reason to do that. 
but we also need to remember that these are sinners that are in the church as well, and I think that's why we have some of the stories that we have coming up. All right, chapter 3, I've entitled this An Act of Healing and Its Consequences. So instead of reading, because I have 15 minutes, okay, okay, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, pretty much characterize Peter and John um, healing a man who had been lame from birth that everybody knew. He sat at the entry of the temple all the times. So they brought him there every day, and he sat there for alms, to collect alms. Um, and he was healed. So Peter says, I don't have money to give you, but what I do have you to give to you is healing. So he's healed, and <laughs> I think this is amazing. If Verse 8, so, or verse 7, let's say that. And he took him by the right hand, this Peter, and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Instantaneous healing, and it filled the temple with his exuberance for praising the Lord. It's pretty amazing. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement. Okay, so Peter, this is new Holy Spirit indwelt Peter, who had just 50 days before denied Christ three times in front of people. But this is a new Peter. And he takes this opportunity to preach again. So he's preaching again, and he does um, a similar model than he did bef- that he did before. Instead of reading all this, let me just go through it. Verse 11 through 16, um, he talks about that this is not the work of his doing, but it's the work of Jesus. He's the one that has the authority to heal, and he's just working on Jesus' behalf. Um, He then reminds the people again what happened to Jesus, and it was due to your hands. So you did this to Jesus. Very, very confrontational towards the Jews. But then 17 through 21, he implores them again to repent. 19 says, repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. So he's still talking again to these people that most likely were involved in Jesus' crucifixion and trial. So he, there is an offer of divine amnesty to all the people that were involved, the people and the leaders, and they should repent of their treatment and refusal of the Messiah. And then 22 through 26, he kind of goes through the fact that this is not just from the New Testament. He goes through the prophets of the Old Testament, including Moses, Samuel, and the other prophets, and he even traces Jesus back to the Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant said that God made a covenant with Abraham and said that through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. Well, that's going to be because of Jesus, and he's, that's what he's, he's talking about there in chapter 3 at the, at the conclusion of it. So Christ is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and that all of the world will be blessed through him. So, all the Jews believed and accepted it, right? No, they got upset. Um, so let's read chapter 4, 1 through 4. I can read that because I need to probably be quicker. Um, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested him put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word 
believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So we're, the number of the men came to 5,000. You know, we'll, so there's, there's most likely some women were saved too. Um, so it's greater than 5,000 um, that had been saved at this time. Okay, so, so the apostles, the next day, as they get thrown in jail late into the evening, um, have to go stand before the leaders. Let's look who these leaders are. Verse 5, it names, verse 5 and 6, names several of them. Annas, Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, all who are of the high priestly family. So these were the most sinister people involved in the trial for, Ju- for Jesus. Um, their first question to Peter is, by what authority do you do these things that you heal or that you preach about the resurrection? Sadducees were always opposed to the resurrection. That's one of the things that separated the Sadducees from the Pharisees. But they probably are all united in denying the resurrection of Jesus. Um, and then this is Peter's response in verse 8. He, he says in verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and the elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been by what means this man has been healed let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified once again you crucified whom God his, his plans greater whom God raised from the dead by him this man is standing before you well this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders which had become the cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no question about this. You, know, you can keep your law all day long, but this is, it's all about Jesus at this point. This is what he's saying. And at that time, verse 13 tells us, well, first of all, they, they be, he identified that Jesus was the rejected stone, now glorified, and he can be the only way for man to be saved. So then in verse 13, the Jewish leaders recognized that these men are followers of Jesus, and they were speaking with authority like Jesus, very similarly, very powerfully, and yet they were not, they were not learned by any of the schools that they, um, they had at the time. Uh, it's interesting to point out that Peter and John had not broken a law. It's not like they healed on the Sabbath. It doesn't say that, you know, like they accused Jesus of doing earlier. Um, they didn't even really try to argue with them. They just pointed out that by, they just want to know by what authority, and they disagreed with them. Um, but their main, they chastised the disciples and said, hey, just don't do this anymore. Just a straight verbal um, chastisement, warning them not to do it again. So this is the first time that Peter and John are in front of the Jewish leaders. So they're released with this, um, this, uh, with this instruction. And then in chapter 20, uh, verse 23, they go back to their fellow believer, the other believers, and they worship the Lord, and they ask that the Lord would be, help them to be bold. And interesting enough, in, let's see, what verse is this? Uh, in 29, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all so almost like an earthquake. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So they asked for boldness, and God, through the Spirit, granted them boldness. Um, And then again in chapter 4, we have another section where it talks about how the community of the church was, uh, how they behaved towards one another. So this kind of sets up chapter 5, which is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Um, Chapter 4, 32, let's read this. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, so there's great unity, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So definitely this the spirit of unity to help each other out in need. Later on in Acts, part of Paul, or later on in the in the in Paul's ministry, he's collecting money for uh, the church in Jerusalem. This is not a long lasting effect for that they had this money and the supply. They ran out at some point because one of the main ministries of Paul was to gather um, money and resources for the church in Jerusalem, which is kind of interesting to think about. Um, but then, then right before we talk about Ananias and Sapphira, we have verse 36 and 37. And it says, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So a positive example of one who was taking his um, wealth or resources that he had, most likely he was not a wealthy person, but took what he had and provided it to be given to the people in the church. So that's that's pretty neat. So we have that both that testimony from the previous chapter and this one about the amazing unity that was in the church at the time. But it's almost like the Holy Spirit in the inspiration of Luke is like, now don't set up this early church as some perfect model that doesn't have any sin within it because then we're just slammed with chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. Um, it's shocking to think about. Um, but there's almost some, there's almost, there's, there's, there's application for us here too. So we have five minutes, and let's talk about this real quickly. I'm not going to read the story, but we know that Ananias and Sapphira, that's his wife, um, sold a piece of land, and they withheld part of the earnings of the land and brought it to the apostles' feet, just like uh, the other people had done, like Barnabas had done, and offered it as, um, uh, as something to be given to the, to the people for the needy. Except they kept some back, but it's almost like they, you know, gave the appearance they were giving it all. They wanted the uh, they wanted the uh, the applause of man. They wanted them to say, "Hey, look at me! Look what I've done!" But they also wanted to keep back some for themselves. So inherently, it's not wrong to keep some of the money back, but don't give the appearance that you are and lie about it. And that's ultimately what happened. So. Peter calls out Ananias, and he says um, in chapter three or verse 3 of chapter 5, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, and did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men 
but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all those who heard of it. Okay, and a few hours later, no one tells uh, Sapphira what happened. She comes in. Same thing pretty much happened. And verse 11 says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Um, it kind of makes you think, check your motivations why you do things at church. You know, if you're up here and you're wanting just to, or whatever you're doing and serving, are you doing it for um, man's applause? There's great detriment to that. And this is an example of the ultimate destruction of humans because of it. Um, but the great fear is interesting to think about, too. Let's read on. Verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. None of the rest, or the, the others, so the disciples and the early church had attracted a following. So none of, it's almost like this event for Ananias and Sapphira cleaned out some of the people that weren't really there to do God's business. Um, so none of the rest dared join them. It's almost like there was a group that was interested in seeing the miracle. They're interested in seeing the healings. They wanted God for his blessings. And that great fear cleaned out those people that weren't there with pure motives of heart. Um, kind of goes along with Dan's sermon, if you haven't heard it already today. But the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever, but true believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that even, so they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Sounds like Jesus, and it sounds like the woman that touched Jesus' cloak and was healed. That was the hope that people had, that just being near Peter, they could be healed. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Okay, I will not finish this, so let's just stop right there. So what's going to happen next, and we'll talk about this briefly next week, is um, the apostles are arrested. And once again, they're held overnight, and this is when the angel of the Lord comes and lets, an angel of the Lord comes and lets them out. And then they speak to the leaders again, and we'll talk about that next week. Um, anybody have any questions? Oh, we don't have time for them anyway. Okay, let's pray. Dear Lord, we, we uh, are a grateful people, and we are um, ministers of your church, Lord, all of us. Lord, but I pray that even as we consider um, the fearful events that happened to Ananias and Sapphira, Lord, that we would check our own hearts. Lord, that our heart's motivation would be to worship you and to please you and to bring glory to your name and not to exalt ourselves. Oh, Lord, may we be um, worshipers of your, um, and fellow partakers of your church for your glory. May that be our sole motivation. Lord, we are grateful for this day, grateful for the opportunity for us to come together in fellowship. Um, we just ask that you would bless our time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.